2 Corinthians. We'll look at chapters 11 and 12 this morning. Anytime I've seen uh, where there's a, any type of level of suffering in the world, whether it be a natural disaster or some type of shooting, what will often happen with mainstream media is you'll see someone get up on a talk show and they'll say, well, if God were real, why would he allow this, this to happen? If we really have a loving God out there, why does he cause suffering to happen in the world? And so you have a philosophical or theological challenge because that question inevitably exists. You meet uh, high school students who grow up in the church and they come to college and the number one reason why they leave the church is that question. They, want, they can't justify why a loving God would cause evil to happen in the world. I often think, see too, that people emotionally struggle with how to handle suffering, not just in our culture, but also in the church. I'll never forget, I had a, a good friend of mine and she, uh, a friend of my, my family's, and she was telling a coworker uh, her mother was terminally ill. She said, my mother is going to die, and we're really praying that she dies peacefully. And then the lady that she was talking to, her coworker, said, I mean, I'll be, praying, I'll, I'll be praying for you about that, but if you would also, as I pray for you, would you pray for my dog? Because we're just not sure if, you know, how he's feeling. We don't know what's going on. As if those two things were parallel. It's just odd. And so we struggle uh, um, phys- uh, uh, spiritually, dealing with the struggle of suffering. We also struggle emotionally. We struggle theologically. We struggle philosophically. Um, but if we understand God's word rightly, we will, and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll understand that the gospel doesn't just give us a good perspective of suffering. The gospel actually gives us the best perspective of suffering. In fact, Jesus himself captures this idea in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And um, I'm going to read this before we get into 2 Corinthians because it kind of sets the tone of, of what, I'm, what we're after here today. Matthew 7, verse 24, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell And the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, because it had been founded on the, what's the word? Rock. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and the sand, and and the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and fell, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, maybe you've heard this parable or short story that Jesus tells to his disciples before. Most of the time when we hear it, the the application point is, make sure you build your life on firm ground. Make sure you build your life on the firm foundation. That foundation is God's word or the the gospel. Make sure you build, and that's a true interpretation. That's that's absolutely true of Jesus's point. But, But another point that I don't want us to miss is no matter what foundation you have, the storm will inevitably come. Do you see that? No matter, it doesn't matter if the person has their house built on the sand. It doesn't matter if the house, person has their built, house built on the rock. The storm comes anyway. But it's important that we do have it built on the rock. Now, as we've seen in 2 Corinthians, many different topics that Paul brings to the table, but I want you to know that what Paul talks about in chapters 11 and 12 are perhaps the most important issues that he presents, and it's equally important for us today, because here's the thing. 
If you and I don't have a biblical understanding of suffering, our lives will be in constant turmoil and we'll be left with our own devices, our own pride, our own self-righteousness to try to navigate our way through suffering. And by the way, suffering is inevitably going to happen, especially to those who are in Christ. And so my goal today for us, for us to capture this idea is not just to see a good way to suffer. I want us to see the best way to suffer. And so here's what's going on in the text. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he's comparing his ministry to the false teachers who have made their way in the church of Corinth. The false teachers' method was to build an audience around themselves. It was all about self-glory and self-boasting. Paul is contrasting their ministry to his own. And Paul's saying, mine's not about uh, self-promotion. Mine's about self-sacrifice. Mine's not about boasting in what I've done. Mine's about boasting in what Jesus has done. And what you're going to see in chapters 11 and 12 is as Paul is showing this contrast between his ministry and those of the false teachers, he begins to talk about his own personal suffering. All the things that he's endured for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to see this, this sort of line that Paul begins to talk through in chapter 11. I'll start in verse 21. It says this, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, least one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I mean, this is starting to sound like a country song. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day, adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers and rivers, dangers and robbers, dangers of my own people. Now it's a rap song. Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toils and hardships, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food. These are all the things that Paul's endured for the gospel, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, There is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I must boast of the things that show my, what's the word? Weakness. Now, I want you to see this, because before Paul was a Christian, his name was Saul. And he was one of the most prominent Jews of his time. And he would have lived a life of comfort and prestige. Now, he's a Christian, and his life is not comfortable and not prestigious at all. Actually, it's full of difficulty. He's literally beaten for the sake of the gospel. And nothing seems to go his way. Which, by the way, I don't know how anyone can hold to the prosperity gospel, which says the chief end for you is for God to make you healthy and wealthy. That's... That's nonsense if you read Paul, because Paul did believe the gospel, did have joy in Christ, and faced some of the most uh, difficult persecution of any character in the Bible. And uh, Paul uh, 
as he endured, he continued to look to Christ. Anyone who says that once you become a Christian, your life is going to be easy hasn't read what happens to the apostles. All of them, except one, was killed for the faith. And all of them were beaten severely for the sake of the gospel. Suffering didn't happen to Paul because Paul was disobedient. Paul was very obedient to his Lord, yet he faced tremendous suffering. If you ever read Acts 27 and 28, if you take some time later on this afternoon or this week to take a look at it, Paul is sailing to Rome, which at that time, Rome was the center of the world. And Paul's going to go, and he's going to share the gospel to this place that desperately needs the gospel. And now, what happens as Paul's being obedient to share the gospel? He's on a ship, the storm comes, and then he is shipwrecked. And as he's shipwrecked, he's stuck on this island. At the end of Acts 27, you're sitting there thinking, how could this get worse for Paul? But then in Acts 28, it gets worse for Paul. Acts 28, verse 1, he says, and this is Luke recording this trip with Paul. He says, after we, me and Paul, brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it began to rain and was cold. Now, here's where it gets bad. When Paul was gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're like, okay, this guy is plagued. That's what they're saying. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and then they said he was a god. That's a crazy text, is it not? But the guy cannot get away from suffering. And as you look at it all through Paul's writing, it shows up. He's, I'm writing this from prison. I'm writing this in persecution. He keeps facing, and you're going, okay, why does this keep happening to a man who's sacrificing his life for the gospel? To quote Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Keller says, the best people often have terrible lives. The best people often have terrible lives. Why does this happen? Well, Paul begins to unravel this issue of suffering, and he's going to do it in some of the strangest ways in this text. He says at the very end of chapter 11, he says, if I must boast, I must boast of the things that show my weaknesses. And then he begins to unpack this idea in chapter 12. Verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to the visions and the revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast but I will boast on my own behalf. I will not boast except of my, there it is again, of my weaknesses. Now, this is a strange text. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Well, this is what he's talking about. Most scholars would agree 
that Paul is talking about himself in third person. We can see that because of the context. And he's actually talking about heaven as in eternal life with God, paradise. He actually uses the word. He uses the phrase third heaven because oftentimes in Scripture, when the word heaven is mentioned, sometimes it's used sort of ambiguously like, okay, heaven can be the sky, heaven can be the stars, heaven can be paradise. And here Paul's saying the third heaven because he's saying it's beyond all the other ones. He's saying it's, this is infinity and beyond. This is beyond everything that we see and we call heaven. This is eternal paradise with God. And here's the interesting thing about it. As Paul says in verses 4 and 5, he, he begins to say, okay, I've been to heaven. I've seen paradise, but God doesn't want me to talk about it. But what does God want me to talk about instead? He says, my weaknesses. Now, there are several reasons why we need to be leery of books sold under a Christian name about people dying and going to heaven and then coming back to earth and telling them about their experiences. I feel like every four or five years, there's like a kid who dies, goes to heaven, comes back and writes about it, and then there's millions and millions of books sold, and then there's movie deals and bumper stickers and clothing lines. It's just out of hand. And it happens all the time. doesn't matter if it's a three-year-old kid or a neurosurgeon, which is the last two popular Christian books that captured this idea of someone dying and going to heaven. People buy them in droves. Now, I have many problems with these books, honestly. But this is just one, is what Paul says here. Because if Paul, who is writing this letter under the influence of the Holy Spirit, And we believe that 2 Corinthians is inspired by God, which we do believe as a church. If Paul isn't allowed to speak of heaven, which he didn't even know whether or not he was physically there or it was just a vision because of the the vivid imagery that he saw, if he's not allowed to talk about it, why on earth do we think that someone today, a child, a neurosurgeon, whoever it is, could come back and have this special revelation that's greater than Paul's. I don't think we can. I just don't think we can. I believe intentionally heaven is vague in Scripture. I believe it's vague in Scripture because I believe heaven is indescribable. We have no idea what it's like to be in the presence of God. In fact, when we see people in Scripture who get close to the presence of God, their whole entire countenance changes. And I don't believe that if we went to heaven and we came back and talked about it, I don't think we'd talk about our loved ones and the streets of gold and all the things. I think we would just continue to talk about how beautiful Jesus is. And when John talks about it in 1 John, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, when it gets into Revelation, what he does, he tries his best to describe heaven, but he does it in terms that we can understand. Well, that looks like a mansion. That's the only thing I can describe as something really big that's hard to explain. I'll just say there's a mansion. When I do streets of gold, I have no idea what that material is. It's really, really beautiful. I'll just say that it's gold to make it clear. But I want you to know, it's not to be taken literally, everything in Revelation. It's to be read as sort of a comic book that's John's explanation of something that he cannot describe. And so the reason why it's hard to describe is because Jesus is there. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And so Paul is like, yes, I've seen this glorious scene. I've been in heaven. I've seen Jesus. I've seen God the Father himself. But he doesn't want me to speak of it. Rather, 
He wants you to know that you can have a taste of it in the here and now in a very unexpected place. Where is that place? He says, in your suffering, in your weakness. That's odd, isn't it? Most of the time when we're in our weakness, we want our weakness to go away. And Paul's like, no, no, no. In weakness, you can actually see the grace of God, and you can see the beauty of your creator, and that's what God wants me to talk about. I have every reason to boast. I've seen him on the throne, seated that all the angels said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I have seen that before, and I can't even tell you about it because what God wants you to know now is that there's power in your weakness. Isn't that beautiful, 11 o'clock service? Y'all are awake this morning? I'm excited about this text. There's some awesome things in this text. And he begins to unpack, starting in verse 6. Let's look again. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For if I would be speaking the truth, but I would refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees me or hears me. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, this is one of the weirdest verses in all of the New Testament. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Anybody have any theological problems with that? I mean, this is a very strange text. Anyone ever say, man, I'm really struggling with pride and uh, I've been praying that God would take it away from me. I've been praying that he would just give me a demon to harass me so that my pride goes away. No one does that. You ever have your little kids say, what do you want for Christmas, little Johnny? I want a demon to harass me so that I would obey you, mommy and daddy. Like, no kid's going to say that. But Paul's saying, God gave me this demon to harass me, to keep me from being prideful. Now, this is difficult theologically because aren't demons supposed to be the bad guys, right? Good, okay, all right, all right, good, good. I was hoping we were on the same team here. If not, we have to do a completely different sermon. Um, so we're on the same team, demons are bad, yet he attributes this demon that's in his life harassing him. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the thorn in his side is. People try to speculate, and they say, well, it was purity because he wasn't married, as if purity goes away when you get married, or you, struggle, you don't struggle with purity anymore when you get married. I don't know. Who knows? We don't have a clue what it is. Paul is intentionally leaving it out, but he's saying, this demon was given to me to harass me and to keep me from becoming prideful that I would boast in myself. In order to understand the difficulty of this verse, we have to come to a foundational agreement that we believe that God is sovereign over all, meaning he is in control of all things good and bad. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for sin in the world. In fact, that would go against Scripture itself when Scripture says in 1 John that God is light and in him there is no darkness. However, God in his perfect wisdom, now listen, in his perfect wisdom and design has chosen us or chosen to use Wicked acts to accomplish his purposes. Now, let me show you an example of this. Matthew 4. Let me show you actually a couple of examples of this. Matthew 4 is an account where Satan tempts Jesus. Yet, we're told at the end of Matthew 4 that Jesus doesn't sin. But 
If you look at the beginning of Matthew 4, we see the same theme. Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Isn't that odd? How is he tempted by the devil? It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's what it says. All right, don't get mad at me. That's what it says. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Satan wants to tempt Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of God leads Jesus to Satan to be tempted by Satan. Not only that, but God tells him to fast 40 days and 40 nights. In 40 days and 40 nights, you're not hungry. You're not even hangry. You're like crazy. And that's where Jesus, Jesus, you can imagine, can't even think straight. He's fully God, fully man. At times, Jesus would be hungry. At times, Jesus would be thirsty. Sometimes, Jesus would be tired. Here, Jesus is hungry and tired. And at his most vulnerable place, Satan comes to him, and he tempts him, yet we're told Jesus doesn't sin. Now, how can an almighty God allow this suffering to happen in Jesus' life? How? Here's how. God knew the outcome. He knew the outcome. He knew and he sovereignly empowered Jesus to withstand the temptation. He does this so Jesus would get the glory, and he also does this so that Jesus can say, and the writer of Hebrews can say, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are tempted. Let me give you another example. If you've never been to church in your whole life, you probably have heard about the story of Job. When we think about Job, can we think about a worst day that's ever happened to any person on the face of the earth? Job is this rich, wealthy man. Job has all of this land and all of these servants. He's got a, a family. He's got a wife. He's got wealth. And then he's there in his normal routine. And then we're told at the very beginning of Job chapter 1 that there's this dialogue between Satan and Satan is telling God, there's no one out there who loves you. And God's saying, no, my servant Job loves me. And he goes, well, let me tempt him and see. And he says, see, here's the thing that has to happen. I want you to see this. Satan has to ask for God's permission until Satan can actually tempt him. Okay? So this is what happens. God gives him permission, and he has free reign to tempt him however he wants, which God is still sovereign over, by the way. And here he is to his normal routine, And all of a sudden, bursting through the doors, a servant, one of his servants comes to him and says, hey, Job, there's an army who came and they took all of your oxen, took all of your donkeys, and they killed the workers of your field. And right before Job could even respond, another servant comes to the door and says, you would not believe this, but literally, a fire came from heaven, and I'm paraphrasing, by the way, a fire came from heaven, killed all of your sheep, and all of your shepherds died as well. And before he can even respond to that, another guy comes in, bursts through the door and says, your camels were struck down by some of the Chaldeans and killed all of your camels and your riders. And right before that guy could finish his sentence, another guy comes in, another one of his servants, and says, Job, I've got bad news. Your sons and your daughters were at a party, and a tornado came, and they flattened the house, They were in, and they're all dead. And then in chapter 2, Job is there, and he's really sick. And there he is, can barely stand. And his wife stands over him, 
And she looks at Job as he's grieving over all of the loss that he's faced. And she says, you still worship God? You should curse him and die. What a sweetheart, right? It's totally Proverbs 31 woman right there. Job loses everything. And the rest of the book is how he struggles with God to understand why, but how does the book end? Job praises God. God allowed Satan to tempt Job because God knew he planned and it ordained the outcome. And in 2 Corinthians, we can only speculate what Paul's thorn or struggle was. And like Job, Paul's struggle was to understand why. But look, as Paul struggles to understand why, look at how God responds to the Apostle Paul about this thorn in his side. Verse 8, Paul says, three times which shows you how godly he is. Only three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made in, what's the word? There it is again, weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul captures here is how everyone in the Bible and every believer on all of history suffers the best. How does Job end up praising God after losing so much? How does Moses praise God after all that he went through? leading Israel out of captivity? How did David, through all of his struggles, through all of his sin, how did Paul make the statement we just read? Here's how. They realize that this is God's story and no one else's, including Satan. Satan tries to be the main character, and God just uses him as a pawn, as an evil component to be used to fulfill God's redemptive plan. And this is important for you to know because if you're thinking that this is sort of, sort of this yin-yang relationship of this cosmic arm wrestling battle, we don't know who's going to win. No, no, no. Satan is a pawn on the chessboard, and God is using him in whatever way, what man intends for evil, what Satan intends for evil, God uses for his good and for his glory. And I want you to see that, believer. God is going to get the glory in your life no matter what you face. One of the clearest passages that sums up this idea is in Romans 8. The whole context of the second part of Romans 8 is Paul is showing the the suffering in the world that we face versus the glory that we'll see in Christ one day. And he seals, sort of bookends this idea in Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite verses. And we know that those who love God, all things... So he says, if you're a believer, for those who love God, if you are in Christ, all things, everything in your life, good or bad, no matter the weight of the suffering, he says, all things work together for what? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That verse right there is one of the greatest benefits of being a believer. Yes, being a believer means our sins are forgiven, and that we're one day we're going to have eternal life with the Father. But listen, another benefit of being a believer is, as John says, you and I, we will overcome the world. We will endure suffering, and we will fight the good fight, and we will finish the race. And so 
whatever your struggle, whatever your sin, whatever your hurts, whatever your wounds, whatever your weaknesses, God in his word promises that those who are in Christ, whatever you face, it is for your good. Somehow God will use that thing in your life, that trial in your life for your good and for his glory. Author Kevin DeYoung writes, if God predestined the cross and brought it from blessing, why, he can't, why, he can't, why can't he predestine our troubles and turn them for good? Even more profound, the writer of Hebrews in 12 verse, chapter 12, verse 6, he says, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This means that God, in his love for us, will sometimes use suffering in our lives so that we will finally realize that we aren't strong enough or capable enough to endure. And then when we, what do we do when we, can't, when we realize we're not strong enough or capable enough to endure? We run to Jesus. And that's why God does it. He wants you to run to Jesus. You see, you don't really know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Why did God, what, what did God say to Paul when he asked, take this away from me? He says, no, Paul, my power is made in your weakness. Friends, if we could just capture this idea, Integrity Church, if we could just capture this idea, we would live our lives walking in the Holy Spirit in a way that we've never seen before. Have you ever faced a trial and seen, okay, God's, God's plan is perfect in my weaknesses. Have you ever faced a trial and said, this is perfect. I've lost my job. Perfect. Lost my house. Perfect. Lost a loved one. Perfect. No. You don't say that. Now, I don't want you to say that either, okay? Don't have your wife call you and say, honey, I got in a wreck on the way home. Honey, that is perfect. You know? I broke my leg. That is perfect, Right? No, that's crazy, okay? What I'm not, I'm not advocating here that we turn our emotions off. God gave those to you in two. In fact, he tells us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who, who mourn. Emotions are necessary part of the Christian life. However, what I'm trying to advocate here is really a mindset that says, God, I believe that you are sovereign and good and in complete control and not only that, but you promise, you promise me that whatever this trial is, I may not know the outcome immediately, but you promise me that it's for my good. Do you see the beauty in that, Integrity Church? Believer, do you realize that you are literally invincible in the sense that God will take whatever evil that has happened in your life and he will turn it into good for you and for his glory. He promises, promises that this will happen to all who believe. Anybody excited about that? I think this is awesome stuff. So here's what I want you to leave with today. First of all, I want you to know that suffering is inevitable. Prosperity gospel preachers here in our culture will try to tell us how to get away from suffering. They'll try to tell you that if you uh, are in suffering or if you're sick, then you, are, you don't have enough faith. That is garbage and is not the gospel. There's not a more heinous, false gospel than the prosperity gospel in our country today. I can guarantee that. 
But here's the thing. I want you to know suffering is inevitable. It's a part of God's sovereign plan, and it has been given to us throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church. We've seen it work, and we've seen beauty in it. We've seen beauty in it because the second thing I want you to know is that suffering, not only is it inevitable, but it leads to maturity. Every maturing believer or every mature believer I know has grown primarily to two things. One, the Word of God. Having the Word of God in your life, being in a gospel-centered community where the Word of God is taught and, and lived out. So the Word of God. The second one, every believer that I know who's maturing in Christ is suffering. Is suffering. God puts it in your life to mature you. As author, Christian author John Ortberg says, if you ask people who don't believe in God why they don't, the number one reason will be suffering. But if you ask people who believe in God when they grew most spiritually, the number one answer will be what? Suffering. And I want you to know, Integrity Church, suffering is perfect for the believer. Here's why it's perfect. Oftentimes when we suffer, we wonder, God, do you even love me? God, are you with me? God, have you forsaken me? Are you here with me right now, God? Why are you putting me through this pain? Why are you putting me through this agony? And we ask ourselves that question. We also say, Lord, I don't deserve this. And we use that word. But here's the thing. The reason why it's perfect for you is because God has already answered the question of does he love you? And he's answered the question of does he love you because he showed you ultimate and perfect love by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. He sent his son Jesus who endured the worst type of suffering. And by the way, God sovereignly used Jesus' suffering to get the most glory. And so if God can do that in the gospel, he can do that in our own lives. And so my hope is as you are in suffering, maybe you're suffering right now, Maybe you've just come out of a season of suffering, and maybe you're just about to be in a season of suffering. What I want to hope that we would have is that we would have the gospel on our hearts and mind because the gospel changes the word deserved for us, doesn't it? Because the gospel says you deserved eternal separation from God, but because of the gospel, you have perfect love from a loving Father who promises you and I who have Christ that we'll we'll suffer well because we suffer for a purpose. And that purpose is for our good, greater love, greater maturity, greater affection for the Father, and ultimately to glorify God so that others might see the beauty of our Creator. And this is what God told Paul when he said, "God, God, would you remove this thorn from me? Three times I asked, he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient. And I want you to see that this morning. Without Christ, suffering would be unbearable. But because of Christ, we are certain that God is for us and with us, even in the midst of the most intense pain we could ever face. So let us cling to the gospel this morning. Let's pray.